Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but I thought Howl's Moving Castle as a movie was one of the worst adaptations. I did no. not like it. No. I didn't. You have to start Ooh. with the movie, Aaliyah. You have to view them as two separate entities. <laughs> They're just two I... separate. That's, that was probably my problem. I think so too, because I really do like the movie, but I don't like it as an adaptation of the book, so I'll give I'll give you that, but... I, I like them both separately. Because I definitely felt when I read the book, I was like, I like the movie so much more than this. Why is Howl from Wales? I was no. so confused. Oh, no. So much better. Oh, but, my gosh. No, okay. the book is great. The book is great. I, I no longer have that opinion, but that was my initial opinion. Whatever. I don't remember <laughs> what order you gave us, Aaliyah. Cameron, I'm Kristen. <laughs> uh, I'm Cameron, and I'm very glad to be back on the podcast. I've been sick for the last few months, but I am back now and happy to be Yay. so. And I'm also really glad to be going second because that means I can jump in with the really low-hanging fruit of The Last Airbender is the no, worst that was mine. adaptation Sorry, <laughs> that has ever been made. I don't think it's anyone will disagree with you. Yeah, we're safe we're territory. <laughs> um, I'm Kristen, and I think one of the worst adaptations is Ella Enchanted. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. They really screwed that one up. <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and I have run out of options. My <laughs> least favorite adaptation. Let's see. I'm sure that there are... Well, you know, there's this really terrible BBC adaptation of Sense and Sensibility that is all rustling dresses. Like, the background is just them, like, going... Oh, no. Background music. It's the worst. Are you talking about the miniseries? Because I love that miniseries. Oh, the 97 miniseries? No, no. The new one. I'm talking about Sense... Oh, no, no. I like the new one. This one's, like, from the 80s. Oh, okay. And I just... I love Emma... And it's so wonderful. And then I watched it and I was like, Russell, there's, there's no music. Like, what's going on here? So sorry, that's very obscure. You should go look it up and you'll hate it too. Wait, I feel like you just said two different Jane Austen titles. Is this The Sense and Sensibility or The Sin Emma? No, it was Emma. I okay. made it up. It, it was Emma. Okay. Then I did just watch The Sense and Sensibility Emma Thompson version, which is great. And I love it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm Catherine and one of... The worst adaptations, I would say, is the film version of Ender's Game. It just, like, lost. It needed to be a TV show because they just managed to lose the essence, I felt like. Yes. You can't make Petra a romantic arc. Oh, please no. It's wrong. (laughs) I feel like that's true of so many books because it's such a different medium that a lot of times if you want to get all of the awesome information from a book into a movie, you need more space than two hours. I mean, and there are ones that do it. I feel like Pride and Prejudice 2005, it's an amazing movie. Cuts a lot Mm -hmm. of Pride and Prejudice, and yet it still manages to get the heart. So, like, you can do it, but it's tricky. Very Really tricky. tricky. Well, we're excited to... I feel like the Games first ones did did a good job, too. They did, actually. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. We're excited to talk more about adaptations today, but first off, a big welcome to Catherine Cowley, the author of The Secret Life of Miss Mary Bennett and the novella Tatterhood and the Prince's Hand in the anthology Unspun, a collection of tattered fairy tales. Tell us about your writing, Kathy. Well, I love writing in both science fiction and fantasy, as well as mystery, historical fiction. I've even done a little bit of contemporary, done a lot of short stories, and my first novel, The Secret Life of Miss Mary Bennett, just came out, and it features Mary Bennett from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and she's kind of the forgotten, overlooked sister. You know, you've got Lizzie, who's clever, and Jane, who's beautiful, and Lydia and Kitty, who are 
you know, silly and fun and love the officers and the officers love them. And then there's Mary, the doll playing <laughs> sister. But I realized she's actually a spy. And that <laughs> is pretty cool. So that's what my book is about, her kind of origin story of becoming a spy. That that's is pretty cool. I love <laughs> that. That's one thing I really loved about this book, because I feel like adaptations, or not adaptations, but like a continuation of a story and a lot of adaptations, um, a lot of times give authors the chance to explain things that didn't necessarily make sense all the way, or that we wish could have been explored more in the original. And like taking Mary and putting her into a totally new situation that explains both kind of the way that she is and then what she's capable of was so cool. Mm-hmm. And this is perfect because today we wanted to talk about adaptations and the inspiration for them. So to start us off, maybe we can just briefly address why do people keep telling the same stories over and over again and still enjoy them? A story is like a, is, is a landscape. It's a landscape of trees. In the book, to, in the book, How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read, it talks about how all stories and all books exist kind of in a landscape, in a forest. They're all connected to each other. And so when you take and you adapt a fairy tale and you take a classic work and you play with it, you are saying, I recognize that it's part of this landscape. I want you to really be aware of where you are at in this landscape and draw attention to that. And then you can really play with it because people have this familiarity and it's like has this kind of wealth of things available for you to use. And I think something that adaptations do is they provide the reader with a lot of background context. So you're entering in the middle of a dialogue instead of at the beginning, which like a totally fresh story idea, if that was possible, would do. It would just dump you at the beginning and it would have to speak for itself. But a really new, like any adaptation of a familiar story can give you opportunity to get really nuanced about preconceived notions that your audience has so like every version of Cinderella ever will end up taking it a slightly different direction or get into slightly different themes or you just have like a lot of ground to play with and that's something I really love about them. I agree. I think that something that people really love about retellings is the the familiarity, because one thing that's really difficult to accomplish when you are writing a story is to have people feel grounded enough and familiar enough that they want to continue reading. And if you're starting with familiar, very familiar ground, because people already know the story, then what they're looking for are the things that diverge. So instead of constantly trying to bring your reader along with you so they understand what's going on, you're just trying to surprise your reader or trying to give them like enough of familiarity that they're like, oh, I love this, while adding in enough new stuff that they're like, this is a whole new story. So, I mean, and, and as I mentioned before, I feel like adaptations... I mean, most classic fairy tales and a lot of original stories leave so much room for us to play around with. Like, um, if any of you guys have seen the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which I feel like address so many things in, like, our particular culture that didn't necessarily have a place in the culture that they were written. Like, Bingley, Mr. Bingley, um, leaving, and that is not cool. I love that they addressed that in that series. As like a, it's not a cultural norm for men to be in charge and like to have them just leave and have it be okay when they come back and propose on the first day that they see you. (laughs) Well, that brings up a a really good question. Where are the limits? Is there, are there certain elements of a story that you have to bring to your adaptation for it to be considered an adaptation? 
Um, are you free to to expound on elements that maybe weren't addressed in the cultural way we would want them to back at the time of the original? What kind of are the boundaries you go into when you're facing making an adaptation? Well, I, I, it's an interesting question because a lot of times people leap. The first thing they leap to is, is fidelity. Was this faithful to the original? And I find myself doing this as well and use, use really like moral language, you know, like <laughs> and, and like it was unfaithful. It was a betrayal. It was all these things. And, you know, and then in that sense, an adaptation is only a copy and a copy is never going to be as good. And so there's a lot of like adaptation theorists, which I recently got into after I started writing the adaptations that talk about how this isn't a useful construct. Like, yes, sometimes things are bad adaptations, but why? The reason why isn't that they were unfaithful. And so Richard Stan is one of these theorists and he talks about, okay, well, what are some useful models to talk about if you're adapting or a work inspired by it? And so, you know, there's lots of different things people do, whether it's, okay, well, what's the essence of the story? And, and are we trying to capture that? Or sometimes an adaptation is a translation, which is its own creative process. Like you're translating it into something new. Sometimes it's a dialogue, so it's in conversation. Sometimes it's a reading or interpretation, like Lizzie Bennett Diaries. That's a reading. It's a very modern reading on this classic text. Sometimes it's like a transformation. And transform. you can transform things in so many ways, whether you're taking one part and expanding it, or one theme and like trying to deal with it. Um, you know, you're trying to like focalize a particular viewpoint or approach. And so like there, in, in some ways, there's no limits to what you can do. But if you don't have a certain core that is recognizable or that maps to it, then it's no longer an adaptation. It might have some sort of, there's all sorts of things that are inspired or pay homage or have references, but aren't necessarily adaptations. Yeah, I actually agree. I think it's very much a, an artistic choice. Um, I find myself, the older I get, the more and more I'm delighted by adaptations that I I only find out it's an adaptation at the middle or at the end. But then when I see those elements that line up, I'm like, oh my goodness, so clever. I just love it. But you know, I also love adaptations that have all the different points. So I really, yeah, I think that's a good point. It really is what you want to get out of the adaptation. You kind of take the element that's fascinating to you, whether it's, you know, the romance that never was fully developed or, you know, kind of questionable elements that weren't ever called to task. Um, and you expound it in the way you want it to. So I think I think there's no right or wrong answer for that. It's just you have to have to come up with a game plan of what you want your adaptation to do and um, decide if you want it to be close, you want it to be far away, but then kind of align those elements and, and your readers will think it's really fun. I actually think that adaptations, um, especially fairy tale adaptations, but you know, like any kind, are a really, really useful way for a beginning writer to get started because you don't necessarily have to, you don't have to spend as much time thinking like what is going to happen in this story so much as what do I want to do with a story that already exists? And so you're dealing with fewer moving parts. So if you're doing a, a fairy tale adaptation of Cinderella, you know that there's going to be a poor girl who is in a step family that treats her poorly and that there's going to be a ball and she'll meet a prince and glass slippers, right? Every single Cinderella story, even if it doesn't have those exact same components, has like a version of them. And so if you are a beginning writer, you can choose a story like that and be like, I know the shape of the story. And then you can choose like 
Catherine was saying, what is it about this story that is interesting to me or that I want to expand on or what theme do I want to focus in on? And then you can tell a story with the shape already in place and then focus in on whatever it is that you're interested in. Well, right, because one of the things new writers face, especially if they're in speculative fiction, which is like fantasy or sci-fi, is exposition. You know, one of the telltale signs of a new writer is you just find massive paragraphs of them trying to explain everything that's going on in the first couple chapters. And if you're doing an adaptation of a story that's already well known, you have the sliding scale of how much you want to rely on readers already being familiar with the kind of story you're telling. And all of a sudden, it's that much less exposition that you have to figure out how to somehow get on the page. Unless you are the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, in which case you have a whole song dedicating, dedicated to exposition. <laughs> Or you can focus your exposition on like whatever it is that's different and it can just be slid in in small parts. That's, that's a good transition then. How do you add your own flair to an adaptation? How can you keep something original that has been told so many times, particularly fairy tales, you know, or, or classic literature? I mean, I, I think like, I always think of it as there's six questions I can ask myself. And I know I learned these questions in elementary school, but they're still useful. Kind of who, what, where, when, why, and how. Because I feel like I, it's like a sliding scale. I could choose to change just one of these things, or I could choose to change a bunch of them. It might be a little risky to try to change all of them. would be a very big challenge. But it's like who, you know, who's your character? What point of view? Are you doing the hero, the villain, a side character, a minor character? Or what? What version of the story are you using? So Beauty and the Beast, there's actually multiple published versions in the 1700s. And then there's like older versions from the Greeks that aren't exactly Beauty and the Beast, but are pretty much Beauty and the Beast. And so you're like, what version are you using? One thing to be careful of with this is like, to not, you can't just adapt like a Disney movie. Uh, if you adapt a, you know, write a version of Beauty and the Beast with the character of Gaston, Disney will sue you. Um, however, there is a love interest in one of the, uh, an alternate love interest in one of the versions from the 1700s. So you could do this, but you better not name him Gaston. So you have to figure out what version are you using? Um, unless you're doing a fan fiction. If you're not planning on making money off of it, if you want to post it on a fan fiction website, then write your stories about Gaston and those will be awesome and a lot of people will love them and read them. You just can't sell them. So that's who, what, where. So like where's the story taking place? You can shift when and when, you know, you can shift the actual time period, but you can also shift like, well, is this the origin of the story, the prequel of this story we know? Or is it the kind of the heart of it? Or is it what happens next? Um, the why, which we talked about this earlier, like, why are you doing this? So there's this great short story called Breadcrumbs by Gina Mason Stay. And it's this Hansel and Gretel story. And the core conflict is that it's years later and Gretel is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's just this like brilliant story about PTSD. Like, how do you move on after something like this? And then how, how are you going to tell this story? Like, what's the form? Are you going to use the same form as the original? Is this a picture book? Is this a poem? Is this a comic book, a short story, a novel? Um, so many options here. But, you know, as I said before, you, you probably don't want to change everything. But, you know, choosing which of these tracks you're going to shift can help keep it kind of fresh and creative and, and have that flair. Off the top of my head, I feel like some of the great adaptations that are, are more recent play with those exact things like you think about the lunar chronicles and you have uh marissa meyer asking the question why is it that the stepmother hates her stepdaughter so much and it's because it caused friction between her and her husband and her daughter is now a cyborg and cyborgs are this and that you know like it, it answers some of those questions about 
about the why and, it, and putting it in the future is what causes those questions to happen. Or like if you think about Julie Dow's Forest of a Thousand Lanterns, which is a Snow White Evil Queen origin story, you find out why it is the Evil Queen likes eating people's hearts. Like there's there's so much there if you just change a few of those factors, just like you're talking about. And there are stories that are adaptations that change very few. You've got like Neil Gaiman's new newish now it's not super new anymore version of Hansel and Gretel and it has this great illustrator and it's pretty similar to the grim version like it really is pretty similar but Neil Gaiman just has this grasp of language and he just tells it this beautiful way but he honestly it's it's pretty on track you know so there are adaptations that make very few changes but I don't know if I could get an adaptation of Hansel and Gretel that was that close to the original published some people just have, I mean, if you're Neil Gaiman, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so what are some elements from classic literature and fairy tales that writers can draw from without it be, being considered an adaptation? Tropes. I, I mean, tropes are not necessarily in the adaptation. Uh, so if you can take story elements from something, that's not the same thing as lifting the story wholesale or even transforming it. So like a prince who's looking for a princess, you're not, that, that's not adapting Cinderella. That's just like a common plot element. Or even you could have a princess trapped in a tower, even figuratively, but it could end up being very different than the Rapunzel story. You know, once again, it could be like these tropes, these elements, whether it's like visual elements or the cowboy hat that might be in a certain story, or whether it's like, you know, a, a situation that happens in a lot of stories. I can actually think of, so these two books came out around the same time and, or within, I don't know, probably within 10 years is probably safe to say. So I don't think there's any way the second one could be an adaptation of the first, but like an enchantment of ravens and the first uh, court of whatever and whatever have like, <laughs> sorry, I don't know the names <laughs> of the books in order, but the, the Sarah J. Moss book. Mass book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they have almost, they have plots that are like 88% similar, but they're still very, very different books. Um, and you can tell that they're not adaptations, not just because of when they were published, but um, because they're just relying on the same sort of context of a story rather than necessarily a specific story. Well, I think that touches on uh, a question that a lot of new authors have. I just saw it go up on a forum somewhere. How do I know if my ideas are original? And I think that the real answer to that is that they're not. <laughs> None of them are. And the the fun part about that is, though, that if you give, you know, 10 writers the same idea, they will all come up with vastly different stories. And that's why adaptations work, because you can have the same plot threads, but everybody's going to come up with different ideas about what is important about that story. I think that for this question, whether or not it counts as an adaptation or a retelling, I think that in order for it to be a retelling, it needs to be recognizable as a story that... I mean, if you have a, a, a Peter Pan retelling, you need to be able to identify at least a couple of characters from the original story and a couple of plot points. Like like Catherine was saying earlier, like you, it would be very challenging to change everything and still have it be recognizable. I think the, the hope is at the end of the story, they're like, oh, that was a Peter Pan retelling. Cool. But if nobody understands that, then it's just your story and it has some similarities. Well, right? I mean, you get that, like, to take the classic example of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey started out as, I haven't read it, but I might understand <laughs> that it started out as, like, fan fiction of this and then enough changed that it's like, okay, yes, it's clearly inspired by it, but it's no longer an adaptation. That is our time for this part of the podcast. Does anybody have any final thoughts before we move on? 
I would just say that my favorite adaptation is She's the Man. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. All right, now we'll go on to the portion of the podcast where we critique an audience submission. If you'd like to see the text of the submission and see all of our notes on it, check our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So in this week's chapter, a young father, Jovius, gets commissioned by village invaders to make weapons. When he doesn't, his family pays the price. Specifically, that's a, <laughs> a better summary than the one I put up. Sorry, no, it was good. It had some spoil. I'm not sure what spoiler level are on these I chapters. Don't think we need to worry about spoiling it's first chapters first that chapter. we're posting, but that's okay. Anyway, <laughs> there's drama, y'all. So, what are some things we like? I just love the world, and you know, it feels kind of immersive. It feels like there's so much possibility, so much story. I love like you've got kind of conflicting groups and other things like. I'm like, okay, this is a place I'd like to spend some time and get to know. I loved the technical aspect. So Jovius, he's this inventor. I thought it was a nice balance of enough like, oh, he did this with a wire. I can't remember the specifics that I I bought it, but I didn't have to get bogged down in technical details. I thought that was nice. Yeah, it seems like it's a very technical and involved magic system without subjecting us to the technicalities and like having to learn the science we're like ooh, science but i don't have to take a class to understand this book sorry continue kristen i'll agree i i think we'll probably come back to this later but there are some instances where jovias who's the point of view character i i think he feels very comfortable in the world that he's in and i thought there were some really good moments where he moves seamlessly through his world like he belongs in it and doesn't really hold our hand, but gives us enough context that we could understand it. For instance, I think that first page when he uses his glow, I think that was done very well. I loved some of the vocabulary with this whole magic system. We have the glow and then we hear about Sanborn. I think some other things, it was just pretty cool. There's a really, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Cameron. Oh, I just wanted to add, I really enjoyed um, Jovius's uh, relationship with his daughter. It doesn't take up a huge amount of space on the page, but it definitely, the fact that we get that emotional weight helps when things go south very quickly. Yeah, to add on to that, one of the really nice moments in this story, I feel like, is uh, at the beginning, he makes her a compass. And then when everything goes south and his daughter gets dragged off in front of him, she drops the compass and it's sitting there on the floor. And that was like the most emotional detail out of all of it for me, because... I really appreciated how close to the beginning the inciting incident happens. That's sometimes something people struggle with, but I thought it was nice. I also particularly like the villain. The villain gets a, gets a great villainous line where he says something like, luckily you have two sources of motivation, and then drama happens. And I just thought it was a nice bit of dramatics, nice bit of terror. It was good. What are some things that could use a second look? I was going to say that might be a good transition Mm -hmm. because I feel like as soon as he says that, you have two sources of motivation. He means his wife and his Mm -hmm. daughter. If you don't build this stuff for us, I will kill them both. But then he actually kills the wife. So he's like, just one source of motivation. Oh, see, I I wasn't clear on whether or not the wife was dead. I was like, I kind of want the wife to have a chance to live. So that way, like, you have this extra motivation to kind of keep her alive. Because I felt like if she died, then... Is it like there's a risk that someone's just to go into despair and not even try? Like, I don't know. I was say for me, for me, I liked it. One cold-blooded murder to show you I'm serious. And then we still have a spare just in, you know, to make sure that you still follow through. 
Not that I liked it too. Very I just evil. I didn't realize she was dead. I I was like, she's still alive. There's still a chance. <laughs> well, I always hope for any opportunity for a character not to get fridged, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was I mean, a it was a gut wound, right? So she'll probably live on in agony for at least another eighteen hours and then die. Wow, Cameron. Oh, so thank you, Cameron. Um, <laughs> too accurate. Too accurate. Actually, I think that that actually kind of drives at the core of maybe what I struggled with here. Because, I mean, she could be alive, but she could be dead. And I don't know which one it is. But I'm also really not sure what Jovius thinks is happening. Because a lot of what happens on this page, I feel like there's so much potential here. But because we're so far outside of Jovius's head, his actions don't actually make sense to me. Because, I mean... I, I love the way this is couched. I mean, it's so scary to think there are these scary people in town who say you will build this for us or you will die or you will build this for us and dot, dot, dot. And then we don't find out it's we'll kill your whole family until after it's already too late. Like, that's great. However, at the time, and this is maybe saying something about me as a person the way I read it, but... In, in this scene, what we have is uh, Jovius messing around with, like, this cool thing he was building. And then his wife comes in and is like, uh, don't you need to do that thing? And he's like, oh, no, I don't need to do that thing. And she's like, but you probably should do the thing. And he's like, no, I don't have to do the thing. I'll do it when I feel like it. And she's like, please do the thing. And then people come in and kill her because he didn't do the thing. So, yeah. like, I, I really struggled with that because I was not sure why he hadn't done the thing. And then as, as a result of all this violence, at the end, he's like, and also I'm not going to help my daughter or my wife who is dying on the floor and so i was really confused about i mean that could be a really great beginning for a character arc of somebody needing to like learning how to do things when he needs to like within a, a schedule like my daughter's being dragged away do something now you know but as as it is in the beginning right now i really struggled to know where he was coming from and why he was acting the way that he was yeah i i agree i think there's any number of reasons that he could have done the things that he's done sure. but we're missing yeah the emotions behind it because like let's say he's just let's say he's one of those creatives and he just had a creative block and he couldn't finish the catapults even if that was the case he should still be you know panicking because the people he needs to build the catapults for that he can't are you know violent invaders who have a history of like his wife says yeah did you see the the, the attacking a child in the street that's rough. Maybe you should go build the catapults so that they don't do that to us. So Whatever the reason he's not doing it, it seems like you should have had a little more concern. Well, and there's so many reasons he could not be doing it. You know, sometimes people just struggle with anxiety or sometimes it's an act of subtle resistance or sometimes, you know, like there's could be dozens of reasons. One thing I was thinking about as I read this is Luke Skywalker in the original Star Wars movie, because, okay, what does Luke want? We always talk about what characters want. And a lot of times we're talking about what they want after the inciting incident. But what does Luke want before the inciting incident? Well, Luke already has a want. His want is that he wants to go to the Academy. He's trying to convince his aunt and uncle, please, can, we, we bought these extra droids. Can't I just go to the Academy now? And his uncle wants him there on the farm because they need him. And his aunt kind of wants both things. And so it's very clear, even though it's in a film and we can't get in their heads like we can in literature, it's still very clear what they wants are, their wants are and why they're motivated to do what they're, they're doing. And then, of course... His aunt and uncle get killed, spoilers for Star Wars, and the whole galaxy's in trouble, and, you know, then he has new wants, right? But, you know, but it gives this whole sense of character, so I almost wonder, well, what does he want before? You know, like, and, and what do each of these characters want, and how is that driving things 
before this shift. This is a note that maybe doesn't apply depending on information I don't have about the submission, but I wasn't sure what the genre, well, I wasn't sure what the age group was. Um, so to me, it read pretty young, uh, but with an adult main character, I was sort of guessing that the next chapter will be a Lara sort of grown up as the narrator. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but just know that that's, that was one reader's response to this first chapter. I had the same response, actually. I was like, this is definitely a prologue. And then we're going to get our either villain origin story for the daughter or like that I need to push past what happened. You know, that's what I assumed, too. But I don't know if that's the case. I, I wasn't sure where this story would go after this for the dad. Any final thoughts? Um, there were a couple of blocking issues. Just make sure that it all makes sense. There was an instance of uh, the wife hugging the husband, wrapping her arms around his chest, which happened from the front and so I was having a hard time picturing how that would work and then somebody holding on to someone while also pointing the tip of the sword at their throat which both of those things I was like how would you do that but maybe that's just me <laughs> I think we all know on this podcast that I have blocking issues so <laughs> maybe it's a very very small sword okay. <laughs> yes that's one. probably what it was <laughs> Well, that's our time for today. To this author, thank you for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. And Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a great pleasure to be here. Be sure to check out her book, The Secret Life of Miss Mary Bennett by Catherine Cowley. Our next guest will be Lacelle Sambury, the debut author of Blood Like Magic. If you'd like a critique from Lacelle, submit your chapter by May 27th. If you like what you've heard, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques, early episode access, and a writing group experience with Blitz Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make Blitz Service, and patrons help us keep going. Thank you to all of you who have already become patrons and are keeping us on the air. Thanks to our assistant, Chelsea Mortensen, who does all our social media, and Craig Harris, who's on sound design. We couldn't do the podcast without them. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thanks for listening to Lit Service. We'll see you in two weeks.